0: Mission sequence start. Five. Everything. Everything. Sounds.
1: Sounds.
0: This is
2: Everything Sounds. I'm Craig Shank. I'm George Drake Jr., and this is Everything Sounds.
0: Hello, boys and girls. My name is Fat
1: Lip, and this is my friend Sammy the Salmon. What to do? Today, we're gonna teach you some fun facts about salmon and a brand new dance.
2: Alright, we need a little bit of context for that. <laughs> what do you mean? I think it's pretty self explanatory. That was The Salmon Dance by the Chemical Brothers. Craig and I have a, a pretty long history with that song. And it actually does relate to what we're
1: talking about today. We didn't just throw it in all willy nilly. First of all, listen to that fun little keyboardy synthy thing. It makes you think of a fish swimming. See? It makes you think of a fish, right? Well, yeah, but that's not the best we could come up with. There are a few more. Like back in 1970, one of my personal favorites from the meters, Chicken Strut. Just keep keep just keep just keep then we thought
2: of an even more obvious example in the form of classical music. This one goes all the way back to the turn of the 20th century. <laughs> it's
1: a bee! It's a bee!
2: <laughs> right. But today we're going to focus on animals. Well, hold on, hold on. There's one more example, which, quite frankly, I can't believe you overlooked. Okay. Uh, what is it? Well, it's a more contemporary song. It was released in 2000, and... I'm pretty sure you know it. Who let
0: the dogs out? Oh,
2: no, no, no. You that's just too far. <laughs> I think I think you mean just right. Who let the dogs out? Okay, let's,
1: let's just get to the point. <laughs> okay. Animals have influenced our lives and music throughout human history, and often it's in ways that are far more subtle than these examples. Today we'll be talking to someone who has literally wrote a book on the subject called The Great Animal Orchestra. He's an expert on the sounds of the natural world.
0: My name is Bernie Krauss, and I'm a bioacoustician. And in, in common vernacular that means I record animal sounds, however large or small, from viruses to large whales.
1: Bernie's path to bioacoustics was a little unorthodox. He says that he doesn't see very well, so most of his life is informed by what he hears. He was initially drawn to music because it was an expression of sound that he could incorporate into everyday life. Bernie studied violin and composition starting at age three and a half, and he picked up the guitar as a teenager. He wanted to continue working with the guitar into college, but music programs were a bit more restrictive than what they are today.
0: applied to places like Juilliard and Eastman and Michigan, and was told that every one of them, they, I, I couldn't get in because guitar was not a musical instrument.
2: So he studied at the University of Michigan and took gigs at fraternity parties and even did some work at Motown for $5 a session. Following that, he joined up with a group that was prominent in the folk boom in the U.S. in the 50s and 60s.
0: After Michigan, I joined a group um, called the Weavers, replacing uh, Pete Seeger. Well, I don't know that one can replace Pete Seeger. But at least I had the Seeker slot for a year. And the Weavers, they were last year together.
1: Following this, he went to Mills College in California. Now, this was during a time when avant-garde and electronic music composers such as Pauline Oliveros and Karl Heinz Stockhausen were lecturing and performing. And Bernie also began to take a more electronic approach himself.
0: And uh, while I was there, I met a fellow by the name of uh, Paul Beaver from Los Angeles. And together, we formed a musical team. and. Uh, also did sessions, some sessions in New York and uh, and, uh, the UK. Their collaborative work as Beaver and Krauss
2: led to five of their own albums, as well as work on over 250 sessions and even 100 film scores. As legend has it, they were instrumental in introducing the Moog synthesizer to film and television scores, as well as bands such as The Doors, Simon & Garfunkel, The Birds, and producers such as Sir George Martin. Unfortunately,
1: Paul Beaver passed away in 1975, but Bernie continued working on film scores and similar projects for a few more years, that is, until he ran into some difficulty with one job in particular in 1979.
0: And then in 1979, after being fired eight times on Apocalypse Now, um, and most people say, well, gee, you were fired and didn't make you feel bad, and I said, well, not exactly, because each time I got rehired, I got double the amount of money. It worked out so that everything was was pretty good in the end i just wish i'd been fired 10 more times now despite the situation working
2: out in his favor in the end bernie ultimately lost his patience with hollywood he decided to complete his phd and he's been working in the field of bioacoustics ever since oh and we need to backtrack just a little for another interesting point given
1: bernie's family life it's surprising he'd consider working anywhere near animals or the outdoors.
0: Well, my family hated animals. I mean, animals are, after all, they're dirty and they're dangerous and they're going to give you diseases and you're going to get very sick and you can't be around them and anyway, we don't want to clean out cat boxes and take dogs for walks. You know, we're indoor people. And so I grew grew up in an environment that uh, was, you know, pretty anti-anything that wasn't human because humans are clean after all and they live
2: good lives. Around 1968, Van Dyke Parks, who you might know from work with artists such as the Beach Boys and Randy Newman, among others, suggested that Beaver and Krauss do an album on the theme of ecology. And due to this suggestion, Bernie ventured outside and faced nature. He took a small recorder into the woods north of San Francisco and captured natural sounds.
0: I turned on my recorder for the first time that day terrified of what I was doing because I was afraid I was going to get eaten by birds and, you know, squirrels and stuff like that.
1: He turned on the recorder and began to take in the sounds of nature for the first time. It's a moment that he would never forget.
0: When the space opened up, because we were just using stereo mics for the first time, when that space opened up and I heard the natural environment, which was just ambient sound at the first time, for the first time I heard it, It was transformational in my life. I wanted to get more of it. I wanted to get it was like a drug to me. And so, um, I just decided right then and there I was going to do everything I could to change my life and gear it toward working in the natural world rather than working in these structured worlds of you know square rooms and fluorescent lights and stuff like that. I never wanted to work inside again.
2: One of Bernie's concerns is how visual our culture can be. He says that it gives us a frontal approach, and it's basically the idea that if it's out of sight, it's out of mind. And that's where the concept of a soundscape comes in. Soundscape is a term coined by R. Murray Schaefer. Essentially, all of the sound that reaches the human ear at a given time is part of a soundscape. And since sounds reach us from all sides, as opposed to just that frontal visual perspective, Bernie believes that thinking about soundscapes can open us up to new ways of considering the world around us.
1: Bernie says that soundscapes can be divided into three categories, including geophony.
0: The geophony, geo meaning earth, and phone coming from the Greek word for sound, meaning all the non-biological natural sounds that occur in any environment, like wind in the trees or grasses, uh, water in a stream, waves at the ocean shore, movement of the earth biophony bio meaning life and phone again meaning sound so sounds of living organisms that uh, that uh, are uh, produced in a
1: given habitat and anthrophony or the sounds that humans make
0: and i call it anthrophony anthro meaning human and phone again coming from the greek word for sound uh, some of it is controlled sound like uh, like music and and um, theater and most of it is created by the non correlated sound that we generate through the electro- use of electromechanical devices that we can't seem to live without.
2: We'll get back to anthropony and its effects later, but let's first touch on some other aspects of Bernie's work. Sounds are everywhere in the natural world, and sometimes in places you might not expect. For example, when water moves through nutrient paths in trees, it creates a gushing sound. Bernie compares that to what you might hear happening in your veins through a stethoscope. But they might bring in too much
1: air at times, and that could cause the cells to pop. But how do you capture those sounds?
0: And so we drilled a tiny hole about the size of a pencil eraser into the trunk of a cottonwood tree, where we happened to pick up this odd signal with a bat detector. A bat detector is a type of device that lowers the frequency of the bat echolocation, bat voices, uh, so that you can hear it when bats are present in an environment and actually record them. Well, uh, we were at this spot uh, recording bats and we were near a cottonwood tree and the closer we got to the cottonwood tree, the louder that signal got. And it was a constant signal rather than pulses like bats put out, which was very strange. So uh, thinking that it was coming from the tree, we drilled that hole I was just talking about, inserted a hydrophone, and captured with an instrumentation device uh, the signal at about 70 kilohertz of the popping cells in this tree, and were able to um, lower the frequency so that you could hear it.
2: The sound itself was interesting, but what was even more intriguing was how that sound helped set a chain of
0: events in motion. But what we noticed was that insects were drawn to the tree because of the signal, and uh, and the tree was uh, exuding some sap. And then birds were drawn to the tree because of the insects. So it was this whole uh, micro-environment that was established. Uh, as a result of that uh, of, of that sound.
1: That example showcases an important contrast. When Bernie first started capturing sounds in the field, most of the emphasis was placed on capturing the sounds of individual elements in a soundscape.
0: But most of the large collections in the world have been done from the perspective of, uh, you know, abstracting and fragmenting that world into individual sounds. And you really learn nothing from that. You learn the difference between a song and a call, maybe, and you get the sound of the bird isolated technically in a recording, but it doesn't give you very much information about where that bird sang and why it sang that way and what the relationship of a song is to other birds and insects and frogs and mammals in a given environment. But I was looking at it from a more holistic perspective, from the perspective of the entire soundscape. And my question was always, what information is contained in these narratives that are coming to us from that, uh, that world? And to me, it just completely opened it up.
1: This relates to some of the ideas that Bernie presents in his book, The Great Animal Orchestra. The book explores the relationship between other creatures and
2: humans and how our music and development has been influenced as a result. You can put that influence into a few different categories. First, we can consider how we may have adopted rhythm or percussion.
0: Not only did we learn rhythms, and we learned rhythms from watching primates pound out these wonderful rhythms on the on the buttresses of fig trees in the rainforest that they lived in, and uh, and when it was observed by early humans that that. Uh, these rhythms and signals were affecting other groups of uh, primates way in the forest. We figured that there was probably some kind of signal involved in that and some way to use that uh, pulsating information as, a, uh, as some kind of com- communications tool, and so we adopted rhythm to do that.
2: In a lecture at Yale University in 1962, French composer Edgar Vérez asked, what is music but organized noises. If we begin to think of music as organized sounds, then we can also thank the animals for that.
0: When we heard the structures of the soundscape of the forest as a unified um, uh, chorus of sound, an organized chorus of sound, um, we learned to organize and structure our own music, our own expressions, vocal expressions in the same manner. If you listen
1: to natural soundscapes, you can detect that kind of organization of sounds. Think of it like this. If birds are singing their high notes, the frogs are croaking away in the lower frequencies, and the crickets and other insects are making persistent percussive or droning sounds. You can hear how they're textured or layered in a cohesive way, kind of like parts of an ensemble with piccolos or flutes in the higher frequencies bass or cellos in the low frequencies, and the percussive sounds providing a beat or drum.
2: So we picked up rhythm and organization from the natural world, but what's left? Well, it's something that's useful in our music and the
0: natural world its harmony Um, gibbons for instance uh, are wonderful uh, duet animals and they always sing in these lyrical duets of the forests of indonesia and borneo let's let's go back to frogs for a moment bernie says
2: that they're very expressive in terms of their rhythm and in their ability to synchronize which humans have certainly benefited from.
0: When we lived in the forest and didn't really have a lot of weapons around, it was important to create voices that were synchronized in chorus. Because in that way, we sounded much larger than one individual, and it was it served as protection. So that when an animal, a predator, would draw a bead on any large group, it would appear too large to that predator to want to to want to attack.
1: Influence works both ways, of course, and humans also have a role in soundscapes all over the world. Earlier we mentioned anthropony, or the sounds made by humans.
2: So let's think about some of the ways that we've influenced the natural world. One of the best examples begins with a robin. Bernie has been asked to speak with students in the past about his work, and he will often assign them a task.
0: I tell him, I say, here's a little recorder, go out and record a robin. And so, what they do is they go out and they go in their backyard and they see a robin in a tree and they hit the record button and they try to record. And they bring it back to me. And I scratch my head when I'm listening to it and I say, Yeah, I said, that's really a good recording of a bus and there's a helicopter. Hey, there's a light plane and a jet flying over. And I hear a cop car going by with a, with a siren. I said, I'm not sure I hear a robin yet. And I said, here, here's the recorder. Go back and try again. And they go back and they try again. And, and they bring it back to me, and there's still a lot of noise in the background. And I said, well, I, I'm not hearing the robin yet. Do you? They said, well, there's too much noise out there. I said, yeah, that's the first thing we've got to learn. So where are we going to go to get that robin? And how are we going to do
1: it? Then there's Yellowstone National Park. Bernie was asked to study the impact of snowmobiles in the park around 2002. He recorded the snowmobiles as they were going by to see what the noise levels were. After he collected audio, he gave a presentation on his findings to representatives in Congress. He addressed them by saying he would only need about five minutes of their time to present this information.
0: And what I did is I measured the sound pressure level of the snowmobiles going by at the same level that I had measured it when I recorded it and uh, set the calibrated the speakers and the output so that it would be at the same level as the snowmobiles going by in Yellowstone. And I said, I'm just going to play for you what it sounded like at the same levels that uh, they were recorded. And here it is. And I played the, the material for them. And These guys were totally outraged. I mean, they were blocking their ears and saying, turn that damn thing down. I don't want to hear those sounds like that. That's way too loud. I said, that's the problem. And I turned off the thing. I picked up my recorder and walked out of the chambers.
2: It was an effective demonstration. Bernie said that they hated it was happening, but ultimately nothing much was done about it. The Yellowstone snowmobile issue involved 15 years of debate and four lawsuits. The National Park Service laid out a plan by early 2013 as an attempted compromise between the tourism businesses and the environmentalists that would still allow snowmobiles in the park, but the fleet numbers, emissions, and sound levels would all need to be reduced. Regardless of where the snowmobile
1: debate ultimately ends up in the future, Bernie says those high noise levels have a huge impact on elk and wolves in Yellowstone. And the fact remains that there are hundreds of miles of snowmobile trails just outside of the western boundary of Yellowstone.
2: Earlier, we framed this conversation in the terms of our influence on animals. But Bernie, well, he has a different opinion.
0: Well, we're not influencing them. We're just terrorizing them and, and causing them a lot of stress in the same way that we cause ourselves a lot of stress.
1: How do we cause ourselves stress when it comes to noise? Think about all of those places that we like to gather or visit restaurants, bars, and other public spaces.
0: So we're drawn to these spaces. We're sucked in. We, and we think that there's a lot happening there, and we get into them. And all of a sudden, we can't figure out why we feel so tired and depressed. Well, first of all, you can't hear the other person sitting three feet across the table from you. You can't hear what they're saying because there's too much clatter going on around.
2: Bernie thinks that some of this stems from a disconnect with the natural world and the fact that sometimes we think that we're above it. He says that sometimes we can think that our judgment is almost infallible and that some people still resist the idea that we evolved from non-human ancestors. But that's not always the case.
0: But the wonder is not in the resistance. The wonder is in the the knowledge of what we can learn uh, from listening to and being part of that natural world experience.
1: How do we get more in tune with the natural world experience? Bernie believes that we need to try to be more generous.
0: What we need to do is we need to stop inserting ourselves in the life structure of the natural world with all of our noise, with our presence, with our arrogance, with our sense that, you know, we can do anything we want and it's all there for the taking. Uh, we have to be a little bit more generous with it because it really speaks to how we're treating ourselves because that's the source of our life. It's a source of our air, it's a source of our water, it's a source of our food. And if we break down that structure, we ain't going to have water or air or food, and that's changing really fast now. got to pay some attention.
2: We have more information about Bernie Krause, his book, The Great Animal Orchestra, and his work at our website, everythingsounds.org. And while you're waiting for a new episode to be released, you can find more
1: stories, photos, videos, articles, and more information about sound in everyday life on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. We share new and interesting content all week long, and you can find the links at everythingsounds.org. Or you can just search for us in your social media
2: platform of choice. Everything Sounds is a part of the Mule Radio Syndicate. You can find out more about Mule at muleradio.net.
1: Thanks for listening to Everything Sounds. I'm Craig Shank. And I'm George Drake,
2: Jr.